The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. For those who don't know me, my name's Anoj, um, and it's a privilege to uh, share from God's Word with you guys this morning. If you're new or um, you haven't been here every week, you've caught us in the middle of a series, um, journeying through the book of Hebrews. And last week, Andy looked at Hebrews chapter 7 and the idea of Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek and why that's a a better order. Um, And today we get to chapter 8 and we look at this idea of covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to show us why this idea of the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And it reminds me of, you know, we, we live in July 2018 and the World Cup is on. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of bleary eyes sometimes. People would be watching the England game last night and the game t- tomorrow morning. Um, <laughs> and but whilst, once all that's said and done, um, once everything's, all the dust has settled and the, the, the victory has been won by whichever team, there'll be agents from different clubs around the world and they'll come out and they'll, they'll seek to make contact with some of these high-level players. In fact, we saw recently Cristiano Ronaldo just this week or, or last week sign a massive contract with a, with a club called Juventus. And it's ridiculous how, what that contract is. I mean, he gets paid like 45 grand just to sleep. That's how, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous, right? But can you imagine, right, just for a moment, can you imagine Cristiano Ronaldo sitting there looking at this contract and saying, look, I'm just going to put that on hold for a moment. I'm going to look at a contract from Sydney FC in Australia. <laughs> One which is so much, so much um, less money, so much less benefits. The exposure to um, the world is a lot less. Can you imagine him saying that? You, you can't, right? Because the contract that he has with Juventus would be so far superior to that of Sydney FC or anything that an Australian club could offer. And similarly here, the, the, the writer of Hebrews is, trying to, is going to try to show us today that this new covenant is so far superior because of what it contains and, and, and what it says. It's so far superior to this old covenant. Um, but before we go any further, I think it's helpful for us to be on the same page um, and uh, be on the same understanding of what we mean when we say the word covenant. Uh, in the Bible, covenant is a, is a solemn promise or an agreement between parties, and it usually... Um, uh, puts on each party's an obligation and certain uh, rules of how they have to relate with each other. Um, and we have stuff, for example, the, the covenant of marriage. That's a, a common one that we see. But we also see um, covenants that God makes with his people. And there's two big ones that we tend to talk about. One is the old covenant or the covenant of the law, um, the covenant given through Moses in, in the Old Testament. And the other one is this idea of the new covenant or a covenant of grace um, instituted by Jesus. And so these are the two covenants that we're, we're, we're looking at today. These are the two covenants that the writer of Hebrews is going to compare for us today. And today, is, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at three things and three reasons why, according to the writer of Hebrews, the new covenant is better to the old. The first is because it, he's saying that the, the high priest that ministers this covenant is superior, namely Jesus. The second argument he's going to make is that the sanctuary in which this covenant is ministered is superior. And the third one, that third argument he's going to make is that this covenant is founded on better promises. So that's a bit of a roadmap of where we're going today. Um, and if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 8. It's a relatively short passage, so we are going to be able to read it in its entirety. Um, Hebrews chapter 8, I'll be reading from the NIV version. Uh, so please follow along. Verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. 
we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for they are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was sorry, this is what this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It would not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By, co- by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. How about I pray, um, and then we'll go into it. Father God, Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to come around your word. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, your, your word is powerful and it's alive, Lord God, and it teaches us and, and, and shows us your ways, Lord God. And we just want to lift up to you this chapter that we're going to go through. Father, we pray that you'd open up our hearts, um, Lord God, and our minds to understand and see why this covenant is better, why it's far superior to the old way of things. Lord, I pray that you'd guard my words as I speak as well, Lord, and help me to speak nothing except what you put on my heart. So, Father, we thank you and we surrender this time in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first argument that the writer of Hebrews makes in this chapter is the argument that says that the new covenant is superior to the old because the high priest, namely Jesus, is superior to the old one. Now, under the old covenant, the way that they used to work was the the high priest had to be descended from Levi. Uh, we'll, We'll go into that further a little bit later. And what they would do is day after day, year after year, week after week, they would offer sacrifices, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the, the people. And this would happen continuously again and again in the, in, the, in the temple. And once a year, in fact, the, holy, sorry, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he'd be able to offer a sacrifice um, in the very presence of the Lord. And that was only once a year and only the high priest could ever do that. That was the, the old covenant way and the, the high priest and how they ministered there. But the writer of Hebrews starts our chapter off by saying that Jesus is better than that. We see in verse 1, as the first thing that he says, is that we do have such a high priest. Now that's referring to the end of chapter 7. Unfortunately, we don't have time to read it all. But at the end of chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews says that there's this high priest who truly meets our need. One who is blameless, who is perfect, who's holy, who's set apart from sinners who's exalted above the heavens. That's the, the high priest that truly meets our need. And so in chapter 8, when he starts us off here, he's saying that's the high priest that truly meets our need, but that's also the high priest that we now have. 
we have such a high priest, one who is perfect. And so he's already different from the previous high priest who had to start by offering sacrifices for their own sins because they weren't sinless. They weren't holy and perfect. They were fallen human beings just like us. And so in that sense, already we see Jesus is being shown to be superior and, 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 and a step up from the, um, the old covenant priest, Levitical priesthood. But then there's a second argument. We go on in verse 1. It says, We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, it may seem innocuous. It may seem like, okay, well, what's the significance of that? But I want us to hone in on, on, on one particular fact. The fact that Jesus even sat down. Now, if you talk to, if you look at many biblical scholars, they will tell you that the idea of Jesus sitting down, it signifies completion of work. It signifies that his work was complete. Now, that's in direct contrast to the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests, they had to offer sacrifices day after day, week after week, continuously. There was no seats in the old tabernacle. Their work was never done. But Jesus' work, he says he sits down, it's completed. To give, a, to give an example, um, from my own family, um, sometimes, sometimes it comes to 9, 10 p.m. Um, I've got to use my mom because I don't have kids like other pastors. So um, I'm going to use my mom as an example. Uh, sometimes it comes to 9, 10 p.m. at night and my mom will say something like, oh, man, I haven't sat down since coming home from work. Right? And what she means by that is that she's probably come home at 4, 5 p.m. after work and she's probably gone straight into the kitchen and she's made dinner for the family and then in between cooking, she's probably run upstairs and made sure my little brother's doing his homework and then that he's getting ready for his piano lesson. And she'll come down, she'll finish off the cooking and then it's 7 o'clock and it's time for him to go for his piano lesson so she'll take him and go there and then even on some weeks, she'll drop him off at the piano lesson and then rush off to the grocery store, do the groceries within an hour, then get back in the car, go back and pick him up and then come back home, and, and all of a sudden it's 9 o'clock, and it's like, oh, man, I haven't had a chance to sit down. And what she means by that is that since coming home, she's always had more stuff to do. She's always, her work has never been finished, and only once all the stuff that she's had to do has been done, then she might sit down in front of the TV or read a book or, or whatever. And similarly here, the Levitical priests are sort of like my mom in that situation. <laughs> their, work, <laughs> their work is never done. They never get to sit down. They're continually doing what they have to do. But the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is different. Jesus sits down. He, he sits in completion of his work. But not just that. It's not just the fact that he sits down, but it's where he sits. He sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's a, a position that signifies authority. It signifies a, a power and victory. It's a position that no other Levitical priest could ever boast um, as, as have been given. And so Jesus not only has finished his work, but now sits in the seat of victory at the right hand of God. And that begs the question, why is that important? Why, why should we as believers here in um, the 21st century, why is that important that Jesus' Jesus's work is complete and he sits down at the right hand of God? Well, friends, it's, it's important because it signifies the sufficiency and it signifies the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. See, it's important because when we sin, when we continue to do the things that we say we will not do, when we continue to gossip again, or when we continue to be dishonest, or when we continue to, to forsake the things that we're called to do in order to do things that we just want to do out of our own sinful desires, when we do those things and we fall short of God's standards, it means that Jesus' sacrifice is still enough. It's still enough to pay for the sins that we commit. 
It's enough to cover our sins. And it's, it's from this place, this place of victory, that we now can fight our sin. When we enter the battlefield against sin, we fight from a place of victory. And no, I'm not saying that, you know, we can be complacent with our sin and say, oh, because Jesus has forgiven us, forgiven us already, I can just do whatever, whatever I want. No, not at all. The Bible says that we need to wage war against our sin. But the power to fight sin, the power to overcome sin, sinful habits and whatnot, it comes from a place of knowing that Jesus' sacrifice is enough and that his work is complete. He's not getting up off his seat and offering another sacrifice every time we sin. His work is done, it's complete, and he now intercedes for us. And, and we can rest and, and be secure and be strengthened by the fact that we know that that sacrifice was enough. And so that's the first argument that the writer of Hebrews makes. He says that Jesus is a superior high priest. The second argument that he goes on to make is that the sanctuary in which this covenant is ministered in is also better than the old sanctuary. Now, follow the logic here, right? If Jesus is a high priest, there's obviously got to be a sanctuary that he ministers in. I mean, every mechanic needs a workshop, right? And so the question then that we've got to consider is, well, is this sanctuary different to what the old priest, the, the temple and the t- place that the old priest ministered in? Is it superior? What's going on here? Now, we could say, yes, okay, Jesus is in heaven, so, oh, of course it's superior, of course it's better. And yeah, you're right. In fact, in verse um, in verse 2, it tells us that he ministers in a tabernacle not made by human hands. He ministers in the one in heaven. But, but there's more going on here in the text. Firstly, we see here in, um, in, in, in verse 4, it says, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. And what that's saying is that if Jesus was still on earth, he would not be able to, to serve as a priest under the old covenant. Why? Because under the Old Covenant, if we look in the Old Testament, God gave the tribe of Levi the the role of being priests. And so if you want to be a high priest, you had to be able to trace your ancestry, your your lineage to Levi in some way. But if we look in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus on earth, we see that his lineage is traced to Judah and the tribe of Judah, which which has no right to being a, a, a priest here in the earthly tabernacle. And so already we're seeing, well, Jesus, if he was on earth, if he was under the old covenant, he could never be a high priest. And so for him to be a high priest, as we looked at before as well as last week, for him to be a high priest, there needs to be a new covenant, there needs to be a new way of things. But not only does there need to be, not only is this, this covenant that he ministers new, but the writer says that because of where he ministers, the, the superior sanctuary that he's in, he uses that argument to support this idea of a superior covenant. In verse 5, if we look at the text, it tells us that they, as in the, the Levitical priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. A copy and a shadow. What it's saying is that the sanctuary that the old priests ministered in was, was, was not the original. It was just a replica. Now, if you, if you look, look to the screens, I want to show a picture here. Right, does anyone know what that... that building is or is like? Anyone want to scream it out? Yeah, it's the Parthenon, but it's in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> right? Surprisingly, it's not, that's not in ancient Greece. That's not in Greece, in Athens. The reason is that in Tennessee, what they did was they built a, replica, a live replica of the Parthenon that is in Athens. And it, even the gradient of the color of the stone and, and, the, and the, the color that you see there is what they believe the original would have looked like. It's the same size. They, they did it to scale. But friends, it's, it's, no matter how great this looks, 
you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that would rather go here than go to Athens and see the original. The value of this can never compare to the original Parthenon that's in Athens. And it's sort of like that here. The writer of Hebrews is saying that the, the, the sanctuary that, is, that the old Levitical priests use, it's just a copy. It's just this. It's just in Nashville, Tennessee. But Jesus, no offense to those who are American, not great. But Jesus is ministering in, in the original sanctuary, not made by human hands, but one that is in heaven. And what that means for us is that Jesus is now not just in a, in a, in a building built by human hands. He's in the very presence of God. When he, when he intercedes for us, as Roman talks about, he does so from the very presence of, in the very presence of God. And we as believers, if we are in Christ, we too now have that same access. We too now can come into the Holy of Holies, not once a year, but every day. We can come before God in prayer and in communion. That is what Jesus has done. That's why when he entered the sanctuary, that's why that's significant. But friends, I, I wonder how many of us live in that reality. Jesus has done this. Jesus has entered the sanctuary above and he's given us access, direct access to the Father. But how many of us are content to live in in, in the outer courts? How many of us are content to do our Sunday thing, come to church on a Sunday, go to Connect Group maybe during the week, but but the rest of the week, we we don't want to communion with the Lord. We don't want to spend time with him. We We don't want to develop that relationship with him. Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, his blood was spilt so that he could enter and, and gain this access, but we, we were content to live in the outer courts. Friends, I pray that we wouldn't be that kind of people. That we, I pray that we would be people that enjoy coming before God daily and, 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 and spending time in his presence, in the Holy of Holies, as it were, because Jesus has given us that access. That's the second argument that he makes. And then we move on to the, the third, and that, that, the third one takes up half of our passage, the second half of the passage that we read here. And the argument that the writer of Hebrews makes is that this covenant is superior because the promises on which the covenant is founded on is far superior to the old. And so we're going to hone in on three of those promises. We're going to hone in on three of these themes that come through. The first promise is, is, first promise is that of grace, right, that we see um, from verse 7 onwards. Now, if we were to flick back to Exodus 24 and the, the, the giving of the Old Covenant, we see in Exodus 24, in, on two occasions, the, the people of Israel, when they hear what the law is, when they hear God's charge to them, they respond, they confirm the covenant, so to speak, by saying, we will obey the Lord. Twice they say that. But then as we follow the story through the Old Testament, we see again and again they forsake that promise. They forsake that agreement that they have committed to make under the covenant. And as a result, they face God's discipline. They're exiled. They face the the struggles um, that we see in the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this idea, this language of spiritual adultery um, in verse 9 when he says, when I took them out of the took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not re- remain faithful to my covenant. So he's saying that, yeah, in the old covenant, they, they promised that, but they didn't remain faithful to that. But in the new covenant, the, the new covenant that we see emerging here, the language that God uses changes. It changes from the people saying, we will obey the Lord. It changes to God saying, I will do this and that. I will write my, my words on their hearts and their minds. I will forgive them sins. They will, will be, they will be my people and I will be their God. The language changes and it, what it means is that this new covenant is not founded, is not resting on our obedience. 
It's our salvation and our confidence law is not rested on our obedience and our willingness to, to, to obey God. It's rested, resting on His grace. It's resting on His commitment to be our God, to love us and to, to continually sanctify us through the Holy Spirit. The second promise that we, we see coming out is this idea of internal change. See, the law, the old covenant, all it was able to do was show us God's standard. It was never able to produce in us a desire to obey God. It was never able to change a person's heart. It was external. It was written on tablets. But in verse 10, in verse 10, God is saying that he will write his laws on our hearts. He will bring about that heart change. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, if we see it on the, on the screen there, Ezekiel 36 verse 27, a parallel passage, um, similarly talking about the new covenant, God says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my, my laws. In other words, by the power of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit, we're now able to have that heart change, that desires to obey, that desires to keep God's laws and His decrees. That's, that's radical, church. That's radical that, that we now in this new covenant can have this heart change. And it's, it's incredible. It's an, an incredible reality of the Christian faith because a lot of other religions or ways of, of living, worldviews, can't boast that. A lot of other ways of thinking is very much about doing stuff and then hoping and, and, and believing that would change us. But Christianity is, it flips that on its head. It says that, no, change, change doesn't come from the outside. Change is an internal thing. That when God writes his laws on our hearts and our minds, that we will then be able to, by the power of the Spirit, have a desire to want to obey him. That's something that's radically different under this new covenant. It's a much better promise that we have. And then we get to the third promise that the writer of Hebrews takes us to, and that's in verse 12. And he says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The law was never able to forgive sin. The law could only make us aware of our sin and and, and show us our need to be saved. But this verse here is saying that under this new covenant, God is going to forgive He's going to remember our sins no more. And that doesn't mean he's going to forget. We're not talking about Jesus or God being forgetful. When the Bible says that he will remember our sins no more, what he's saying is that he's not going to count our sins against us because that's how absolute that forgiveness is because of what Jesus has done um, on the cross for us. And so, friends, that those, those promises that, that come together, the promise of grace, promise of eternal change, promise of forgiveness... They're the superior promises that the writer of Hebrews is saying makes this covenant so far superior. It may be helpful to think of it this way. Um, imagine you're, you're, you're looking for a new job and you've got two job offers, right? And you've got two contracts you're looking at. And by and large, it might be the same, but one contract has more, more salary, more money. One has more leave benefits and, one has, and, and that one also has more... Um, Employee benefits, just, you know, free food, et cetera, et cetera, right? One contract, you would say, is far superior because the, the details, the terms of that contract are superior to the other one that you're weighing up. And it's a similar argument that the writer of Hebrews is making here. He's saying that this new covenant promises grace. It promises internal change. It promises forgiveness. Why would you want to even look at that other contract? Why would Cristiano Ronaldo even want to look at Sydney FC? This, this covenant is so far superior. 
And as, as a result for us, if we are in Christ, if we commit our lives to, to being his children, we can live in that joy and that hope and that security, knowing that because we've been given the promise of grace and internal change and forgiveness, we no longer have to strive to earn our salvation. We no longer have to worry about whether the sacrifice was enough, whether we have to offer another sacrifice or someone else has to offer a sacrifice for us. The new covenant promises us as believers that we can have lasting relationship with the Lord, that we are united Him, and not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus has shed His blood to pay for our sins, because Jesus has now entered the very presence of God and, 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 and made that sacrifice for us. And now when He intercedes, and when, when, when He intercedes for us, he does so from that very present, the very presence of God. And so, friends, I pray that we would be people that aren't content to live in the outer courts, that aren't content to live lives that try to strive to be good enough to earn God's merit or earn God's favor. I pray that we wouldn't be people that doubt whether Jesus' sacrifice is enough. The writer of Hebrews goes at great lengths in chapter 8 here to say that his sacrifice is enough. He goes to great lengths to say that now we have access to the, the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done. And the writer of Hebrews also says that the promises of this new covenant are so far superior, there's no way we could ever turn back to the old one. There's no way we could ever go back to trying to earn our salvation. And so as we close, I just want to give us a moment to reflect. Maybe some of us here live lives where we doubt, where we, we think, oh, yes, I know Jesus saved me, but I did that sin again. Is, is Jesus' sacrifice really enough? Or maybe there's some of us who are living in the outer courts and we recognize that we are living there, that we recognize that we're just content to be at a distance, just to, to do the bare minimum, that we don't regularly come before God in His very presence. Or maybe for us, we've been challenged by the promises of grace and internal change and forgiveness. Father God, we, Lord, we come before you, Lord, as your people. Lord, Lord God, we are so grateful, Lord Jesus, that your sacrifice was enough. We're so grateful and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for being obedient unto death on a cross so that we could receive forgiveness. Lord God, we're sorry for the times that, that we've taken that for granted. We're sorry for the times that we've doubted that, that we've doubted that the new way of, of living that you've um, instituted, Lord. We're sorry for the times that we've doubted that as being the superior way. And Father God, whatever we're struggling with, Lord God, wherever, Lord God, we need to see that, that change, Lord God, we pray, Lord, would you, would you bring that change about in our hearts by your Spirit? We thank you that we can have our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit, Lord God, because of, of, of this new covenant and what you've done, Lord Jesus. So Father, we pray that we would be a people that live, Lord God, rejoicing and, and gladly under this new covenant and what it means. The covenant that was instituted by your blood, Lord Jesus. Help us not to go back to the old way of doing things, to try to earn our own salvation. Help us to rest and to trust you, Lord God, and to wage war against our flesh, yes, but from a, from a, a position of victory already. Lord God, we are so grateful, Lord, for what you've done. And Lord, we surrender it into your hands, Lord God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Anuj. That was a great word. Why don't we encourage him? Praise God.
We're going to dismiss this meeting, but just a couple of things before we go.